the thing that he taught me was you can still thrive and not have cultural power. It looks different though. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Have you ever had one of those conversations that when it got over, because of time that you were frustrated because you really didn't get to talk about what you wanted to talk about. Now, I've had several of those conversations over the years on Apollos Watered, but it was the one with Colin Hansen that really stuck in me because I had read the book that he had written about Tim Keller, and I wanted to talk a lot more about what he had introduced to us in Tim Keller's life. Now, I know, why are we continuing to talk about Tim Keller? Shouldn't we be talking about the mission of God? Yes, we should. That's, that's completely true. But the reason that I want to talk about Tim Keller a little bit more is because of his influence on Christianity today and how it's grown over the years, even since he's retired. And not only his influence, but because he has provided basically a roadmap on how to move from Christendom to true biblical Christianity. Now, I know that that might seem like a contradiction in terms, but it's not. When I use the term Christendom, I'm referring to all of the accoutrements that go around Christianity when it's the majority, meaning that there's a mindset, there's a perspective on how we live, how we operate, how we go about in our churches. It's the idea that we don't have to do anything for hospitality in our church because people are going to come no matter what. Well, that's a kind of a, a high Christendom mentality. Because you know you're great, you know that people are going to come to you because there are so many Christians around and you might be better than the other churches and you might even set yourself up as being better than other churches. That's really a high Christendom mentality. But when it's low Christendom, meaning that Christianity is not the majority, culturally speaking, and may have little to no influence, how do you go about sharing Jesus? How do you go about living as a Christ follower when people don't share your terminology, share your language, share your perception or worldview? on how the world works. And this is where I think Keller has done well, because the urban centers are really the tip of the spear, culturally speaking, on where thoughts develop, and it trickles down into a variety of different other communities. That's why I wanted to revisit the conversation that I had with Colin. Even though Colin's not here for this episode, I've invited Wayne Stender, who is our audio engineer, to talk with me about this episode a little bit further. Because Wayne had listened, Wayne has worked in a lot of different venues and with a lot of different Christian speakers and been a, a fan of Keller over the years. So I wanted to talk with him about what it means to be a Christ follower in the midst of this world. I also wanted to talk about Keller's influence, on, especially in his document, How to Win the West Again. I think it is a foundational document, just a manual for how to go about mission in the 21st century in a post-Christian pluralistic world. But we can't have conversations like this without your help, your partnership. We need world waterers. Those who want to water faith around the world because people, so many people, so many Christians I talk to tell me that they are languishing, that they are dying on the vine. 
They want to go deeper. They want to understand more. And we want to be able to help meet that need. And already we are. By God's grace, we are. I keep hearing from pastors, from leaders, from all the way down from a small group leader, all the way up to superintendents of entire denominations. Tell us about how much the show has meant to them and equipping them for fulfilling the mission that God has for them. But again, we can't do this without your help. We need your financial support. So you can click on the show notes. There's some show notes there that have a link to support us or go to apolloswater.org and click the support us button. And you'll be glad you did because you know that you're helping not only water leaders and water believers, excuse me, but water leaders around the world so that they might be nourished to continue on, to be renewed, to fulfill the mission that God has for them. But with that in mind, let's get to my conversation with Wayne Stender as we talk about Colin Hansen and Tim Keller and how to win the West again. Happy listening. Hey, all of you watering warriors out there that want to water your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. We're doing a, a special episode of Apollos Watered just for you. And I was talking to my producer, Wayne Stender, and Wayne and I were talking about the interview that we just had with Colin Hansen in his new book on Timothy Keller. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed the interview, but one of the things that frustrate me about a lot of our interviews is that they go too short. That's crazy to say because many of our interviews could go like 90 minutes, but I really wanted to delve further into the book because there was so much about the book that I think is so relevant to us at Apollos Watered, especially as we're seeking to renew the church in the West. So I invited my producer, Wayne, to come on the show. You don't get to see Wayne very often, but you hear him all the time because he's uh, making that cool music that you enjoy, those little breaks. And uh, he he's also a pretty knowledgeable guy about a lot of things. And we get to dialogue every so often off the air, but I thought this would be a good conversation for everybody to see. So Wayne, welcome. So you can see everybody and everybody sees you. How you doing? Yeah. Thanks, man. I feel like this is an episode of books my friends have read. <laughs> I have not had an opportunity to read half of the books you talk about, but this is like, you know, you kind of made a comment that like the between two ferns in the last episode, this is now books my friends have read where I pretend like I know everything that was in this book. It's going to be amazing. I think it's going to be fantastic. I really like that idea of books my friends have read. I mean, even with me, I, 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 I'm a pretty fast reader, but some of the people that we interview on the show, I mean, you heard Colin talk about it when he was, I asked him about how many books that Keller read and he goes, we'll start at a hundred. I'm like a hundred. Like, that's just crazy to me. And I, and we, I know we have people that I've encountered. Some of them have been guests on the show and they, they don't want me to tell on the air. So I won't tell them who, who it was, but they read over 200 books in a year. And my reaction is, is do you have a life? Like, 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 do you have children? Do you have a spouse? Do you go out? Do you see daylight? When, I mean, when I hear that, I think, you know, I just read good. I don't read well. I just read <laughs> I'm not even on their wave, wavelength, man. That's I'm not either. I wonder if they actually watch, if they have it on books on tape. You know, I just feel like that, that it is just insane. The, what they're reading. But I think, you know, one of the things that I loved about what Colin talked about, and it's a little bit of what we talk about a lot here on the show, and you talked about it just briefly, just touched on it, but it's this idea of kind of like winning the West. And 
when I think about Keller and where Keller goes with a lot of his writings and where he's living, like in New York City, I had a friend that did a church plant in New York City, and it's just a whole different world. And I'm, I'm out here in Minnesota. It, this is this is like a whole new world, right? This is, is like the other side of the rainbow. But where Keller is, it's just such an, a dynamic place. The the thoughts, the concepts, the things that they're wrestling through, and almost like he's engaging the world before we do in some ways. And so I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that idea of of the West and where kind of Keller goes with that and why you just, I know you want to talk, you wanted to talk more about it, but you had to keep going deeper into Colin's book. Right. But what is this idea that, why did you want to talk about that with what Keller talks about with how the West was won? Well, that's really a good question because I mean, for one, that's the purpose of our ministry. That's, that's the reason that Apollos watered exists is we want to renew the church in the West. Now, Anyone who has done any study on stats would see that the church is in trouble at a macro level in the United States. Now, I do think there are pockets of revival. I I think that Asbury brought out some of that. I think there's something to Generation Z. I've seen more and more people talk about that. These younger people are, are growing up. They're digital natives. They're not afraid of the technology. They're not intimidated by it. They've grown up in an LBGTQ world. They know how to navigate that landscape. Then I think many of us who have been in what I call a high Christendom culture understand. See, this is the thing about Keller that I think is very different and why we can't all apply Keller in the same way. So you're in a small town. I grew up in a small town. Right now I'm, I'm in kind of this exurban, uh, it's not really, a, it's, a, it's a new community. It's, I guess it's a suburb, but it doesn't feel like a suburb. It's, it's a town. It's its own thing. So when I think of what Keller does, Keller is in the middle of what I call a low Christendom culture, meaning that Christianity isn't part and parcel of the identity of the people that are there. They may not even be familiar with the symbols, the ideas, the concepts. It's very pluralistic, secular, but it's pluralistic where there's not one major viewpoint that dominates the theological landscape, if you will, or even the social landscape. It's very pluralistic, which I think is actually much closer to the world of the New Testament. But in a smaller community, those are more of a high Christendom culture. What I mean by that is the community, even though they may not follow Jesus, they have an idea of who Jesus is in a greater way, and at least hopefully a respect for it. They might even have a belief in God and see themselves as a good, really good person. I think that requires something a little bit of a different approach. Now, Keller, where he's so fascinating to me is he understands that secularized world. And even in a high Christendom culture, by the way, I think itself is shifting because as that older generation dies off, those boomers and even my generation, which is Gen X, is moving into more of that older role, which is even weird to say that older role. My generation still has a familiarity with Christianity. And I say it's high Christendom, but there's again, respect. We like my friends who weren't Christians went to VBS with me when I was a kid, vacation Bible school, we would sip the Kool-Aid and play Red Rover and sing Bible songs in the air conditioning after the bus would pick us up, you know, that kind of thing. But as the culture does shift, I think methods have to shift because I think what happens in an urban culture, it begins to filter its way down even to the smaller communities at a slower pace, but it does. And globalization, the internet, all that has changed it. But this is where I find Keller is is so insightful because when he he actually talks about the how to win the rest again, and I'm really glad you brought that up. He, he's written like, kind of like a mini book. 
an ebook, maybe a pamphlet. I'm not even sure how to describe it. It's it's got like 20, 30 pages in it, but it's so good. And he's even done a podcast about it, which I really, really appreciated. Let me actually read this from the book. He said, if Christians help to hope to evangelize their neighbors, they can't ignore or denounce them, which I think happens in a Christendom culture, by the way. They must know how the gospel changes everything. Oh, that 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 itself is huge. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. Do you, do you think that in your culture, because again, you're in kind of a small town, Minnesota. Do you think people have a familiarity with like, or, or let me, let me get this. Is it a high Christendom culture in your opinion or a low Christendom culture? We have one of the highest churches per capita places in the United States. Right? Okay. So, so high Christendom. Incredibly high, highly Christian. And I would say, you know, as you're talking here, it, it makes me wonder, think through like, what was the New Testament like? You kind of referenced that New Testament culture, but what was the New Testament like when Paul was writing to the Romans versus when Paul was writing to the Corinthians versus when Paul was writing to Philemon versus like all of these, all of the dynamics of, I, I kind of get this picture of like, Keller's almost Pauline in our culture, mm-hmm. understanding a lot of different people. You know, one of my favorite Keller, Keller-isms or Keller quotes, I don't know if it's, this is the exact way he said it, but essentially he said something to the effect of, when you're when you're pastoring a small church, your pastoring helps your preaching. Mm-hmm. When you're pastoring a large church, your preaching helps your pastoring. And you know that's he he I I think he gets that perspective where many of us are is that mm-hmm. we're in very different cultures, um, you know, different pockets of cultures, and our cultures end up shaping us. Even though we shape the culture, the culture kind of flips back around and does shape us. The loves, the labors those loyalties, liturgies, the longings, the different L words that we want to put yeah, in there. Yeah, that sounds like a sermon. It sounds <laughs> yeah, like you've right? been preaching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, that's kind of the, my Baptist roots coming out that I don't have any Baptist roots. We're going to pull up an alliteration here. We're going to go for it, man. But I do think that there is that aspect, though, of Keller where he does speak into so many different cultures while at the same time just simply bringing the gospel to bear inside of culture in general in mass even though he's in a very urban area yeah it but, still holds relevance for those of us that <laughs> live in the boonies that can see the earth curve you know no i i think you're right because when you see how your culture where your culture's at it helps you contextualize the message you know and that's where i think keller's great that's one of the things i actually appreciate about the book i knew that he pastored in west virginia i didn't know the kind of church i mean i, I knew it was presbyterian because he's presbyterian 
what I didn't realize, it was kind of this blue collar, rough kind of country church in a way, but it grew. It just grew. And so it, I, I find that actually life-giving to know that he could communicate not only to the Manhattanites, but to the, to the rural working class. And not that I'm trying to deify or promote Keller. Some people are wondering, Keller, 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 why do you keep talking about Keller? Uh, I, I think it's because he brings to the forefront a lot of issues in our contemporary culture that very few do. And I think he's provided a way forward in completely secularized Manhattan, which is really kind of the tip of the spear of secularization. As the culture becomes more and more secular, we need templates to draw from. Like you're mentioning Paul earlier. And one of the things I, I love about Paul and Acts, and we talk about Acts all the time, about you know Paul's journeys. We talk about the Holy Spirit, what he's doing, and people get caught up in it. But rarely do we actually talk about the culture and what's going on in Acts that way and the difference between the cultures and the people that he's interacting with. And I love that Paul, Paul has different approaches for different people. I mean, that's why he says in 1 Corinthians, I become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. And I think when you understand that and that approach, like when he goes to Jews, he starts in the synagogues. But when he goes to the Gentiles, he starts trying to find out how to build a bridge to them and goes and visits their temples and then addresses, you know, you, you have a temple even to an unknown God and to that unknown God, I want to proclaim to you, you know, and he, he, he builds that bridge. But I've actually heard some pastors tell me that, oh, it's because he didn't preach. He didn't get the same results. Like he went away from his, his glory, you know, his strength. And I, I don't think that's right. Right. I think that's a total misreading of the, of what's going on. Because again, and we've said this kind of ad nauseum on the show, there's a reason why we have four gospels and not one. Because each one's hitting a different cultural touch point. You know, Matthew, of course, is talking to his Jewish audience and he goes to the begats because that's a huge thing for them. They need to know what's your pedigree? Where'd you come from? What'd you, you know, who do you belong to? Who, like I, I, I was talking to this Iraqi guy, just to give you an idea. I was witnessing to this Iraqi, he's a Shia Muslim. And we were getting to know one another and he wanted to know what my son's name was, my oldest son. And my oldest son's name was Elijah. What's your oldest son's name? Brayden. Brayden. So your, your name, he would address you and call you Abu Brayden, right? I was Abu yeah. Elijah. Right. Because you're defined by the relationship with your son in that cultural context. Now, different cultures do it different ways, but he wanted to know about my family and where I came from and my upbringing. And in our culture today in the West, that's less just because people are moving back and forth so much. But I still think it brings out something that you could see in that culture that was highly valued. And Mark never even touches the birth of Jesus. And I don't, I don't think many people realize that. It starts with the baptism of John, where you get into Luke and he's getting into the miracles and the humanity and and John, I mean, John, I don't know what, everybody's like, what was John thinking? Because he's addressing <laughs> this Gnostic audience, you know, like that's in his, it's like, this is what's in his theological pipe, if you will. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I just look at him and I go, he, he was totally talking to Greeks who were into philosophy. So I, I think it's just important. And, and to me, it's also freeing because it, I realized that there's not like a one size fits all approach. Now, I'm not saying that salvation's different. No, salvation's the same. And a person needs to understand their sin. That's not different. But 
I do know some people are like, well, we got to change this. We got to focus on love and not judgment. I, I mean, I, I get that. But a person needs to know that they're a sinner before you can know they're saved. But they also need to know they're loved before they can know they're a sinner. And I think people forget that. So I, and that, that's what I, as I, as I was reading the book and they, they delve into it. I, actually, I wanted to read these. He says, in Jesus, as Keller wrote in How to Win the West Again, Christians find a meaning in life that suffering can't take away, but even can even deepen. Two, a satisfaction that isn't based on circumstances. Three, a freedom that doesn't reduce community and relationships to thin transactions. Four, an identity that isn't fragile or based on our performance or the exclusion of others. And then fifth, a way both to deal with guilt and to forgive others without residual bitterness or shame. The next, a basis for seeking justice that does not turn us into oppressors ourselves. And then a way to face not only the future, but death itself with poise and peace. And lastly, an explanation for the senses of transcendent beauty and love we often experience. So one of the things that I think was so enlightening to me a little bit as I was listening to you guys talk about this book that I haven't read. (laughs) (laughs) You got to read the book. Or get, tape, or get on tape or get on tape. I've got to get it. I'll read it to my kids at night because, you know, we're we're really done with Goodnight Moon and all of that. <laughs> you know, Brown Bear, Brown Bear is really old right now, man. But we're going to get into this. We're going to get to Tim out. Keller's. Here, yeah. kids, let's turn to this. <laughs> yeah. But I do have to say, when Colin was talking about Tim's, um, I talk about Tim like he's, when talk, when like you know him. Like I know him. We're buddies. Like I call, he's on speed dial. Let me say <laughs> When Colin was talking about Mr. Keller's perspective on even like his upbringing, like his brother, uh, his sister, you know, there's something about that. Maybe it's more for me, like, because we're in the Midwest, like life is just different here. You are a little bit defined by your family many times inside of at least the culture that I'm growing up in and my kids are growing up in, you know, we're who your family is kind of a thing. It's kind of something that you're building and you're, you're kind of known by that. One of the things I'd love to hear you maybe kind of explain or expound on is the dynamics of what you just read regarding this from the book point to, I think that, that uh, kind of yearning for all of us, even those that are in a, in like an urban context where there's a lot of culture and it's natural to kind of, not necessarily want to be defined by your family and try to break some of those familial bonds and kind of go into the big city and be whoever you're going to be. But we still have this desire to be known. And inside of kind of our approach here within mission and looking to live kind of that mission life, and you talk about it as the missio holistic approach, Mm -hmm. is there a dynamic inside of knowing our family and even kind of the way that Keller's family and how he lives that out. And it's been something that hasn't been really exposed. I wouldn't say exposed. hasn't been something that's been talked about a lot inside of circles. I had no idea. And I've been a big Keller fan. I have read others, other books by him. Sure you (laughs) have Wayne. Fair enough. I really love his book, (laughs) Forgive. I have to be honest. I did read Forgive. It was on audiobook, but it was really, really Is that reading? Can you say that you read a book when you listen to it? I don't know. I don't know know how that works. But I've listened to it three times, so I think that qualifies. All right. Oh, oh, well done. Well done. 
Yeah. So uh, there's, there's, you know, changing diapers and stuff in between there. So I don't know if it's like the most holy of readings, you know, but we're doing it. But I, I'd love to hear you ex- expound on that. Is there a relationship to the family as like, as you try to live out that missio holistic approach to mission? Is there something about your upbringing that does guide you? Or is it really truly like you have been born again in Christ? And so you kind of you know, start anew or start afresh. What does that look like? Have you ever thought about that? Actually, I have. You never can remove your family completely. Even if you become a new believer in Jesus, like, yes, you have new desires, you have new tastes, you have new friends, and you do have a new family in some way, but you can't remove how your family has shaped you. Not completely, for good or for bad. And to me, that's for good or for bad. Because if you've grown up in an environment, let's say that you had um, none of your, no, no, not, no one in your family was a Christian and you become a Christian, but you were taught about maybe a love of cars. You still might have that love of cars. You know what I'm saying? Like, or have a work habit or, or, or sense of humor. Those things don't go away. I do think they're kind of baptized in a way, you know, they're sanctified. I, I do think though, with the fragmentation of the family, I think people are looking for identity. I, I think that's the biggest stressor right now. Because identity is everywhere. That's all I ever hear people talk about, identity, identity, identity. You know, then I hear people say, well, your identity in Christ. Okay, but what, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? If you can give me chapter and verse, I understand. But what does it mean? Like you're a new creation. What does that mean? That you're forgiven, that you're a different person, that you have different dreams, you have different aspirations. What about, are there consequences for your previous actions that you dealt with? Because I meet some people that are like, oh, I'm a Christian and I'm delivered from whatever sin and consequence that I've had. Well, yes, but there are... There are still consequences you have to face. You know, like, for example, if if you had an affair and you confessed it, well, you're forgiven. Yeah, but there are consequences. And let's say that you've got a venereal disease. That, that's a consequence. You've also shattered the trust of the person that you, you know, you cheated on. So that's just a small example. But families do influence us. And I wish we could see more of that. I think we're finding out more and more how much that that shapes us. I think people, if they don't have family, I mean, their family is broken for a variety of reasons. Some, uh, and usually nothing to do with them. I mean, like the family you grew up in, I mean, your family of origin and, and we're, cause we're seeing the disintegration of the family. And I know in your environment, our family is a pretty big deal. You, yeah, like they, you yeah. said they are, but yeah. like where I'm at right now, families are a big deal. But when I was in Chicago, it wasn't a big deal. Not as much. It just didn't have as an influence on you because you had a lot more single parents, single families, even in the environment where I was at in um, the Southwest suburbs of Illinois, families weren't as big a deal just because you had a lot of singles, number one, that had been there quite some time. And you also had just other, other situations in which you found yourself a lot of, again, broken marriages, uh, divorces high, but the, the person that really suffers is the kid. And I say that because I mean, even though kids may, might, might say, well, I'm doing fine. I mean, usually kids are pretty resilient. But to me, it's in the long-term effects as you go about relationships that those things are discovered. Mm-hmm. And this is where the church can be a spiritual family, even a surrogate family in some respect. But you never are completely rid of that other aspect of your family, mm-hmm. in my opinion. I heard somebody talk about this topic a little bit. And I I think it'd be kind of fun for you to expound on if you feel like it. So I've heard some people talk about the fact that when you look at that picture of adoption, especially in scripture, 
that it's probably one of the strongest images that is used in all of scripture to kind of describe what it actually looks like to kind of come to know Christ in a new, in, in a real way. Mm-hmm. Right. So this idea of adoption specifically kind of like in our culture, we have, I have family members that are adopted into our family to, to us. They're like, they're no different, but they right. had, you know, challenges inside of their reality and kids or whatever, and parent situations and what have you that were broken. And then coming into our family, they've had a chance now to, to just, you know, get a picture of what mother, a father, a husband, wife, brothers, sisters look like. There's a little bit of like redemption going on in that picture. Right. Yeah. And I think sometimes even like when we look at this inside of the church, is there that same picture when somebody comes in, like the work that, you know, Tim Keller did with everything that was going on in the inner city or in the city with people coming to know Christ and, and really being adopted. I've, I would probably use that phrase into the church, you know, mm-hmm. they're coming, coming in and being grafted in There's those other images that are used in scripture and what that looks like to come and be a part of the body. What does that, what does that imagery do also kind of in your thinking for like living the missional life, living kind of a, a missio holistic life is adoption kind of like that picture of redemption that we should live into. And is that, is that a phrase that we should maybe like expound on or think through or process as we're trying to live within that cultural context? What are your thoughts? That's, there? that's a huge question. What do you I think? <laughs> That's why I asked no, you, man. Like, I mean, you what I think. <laughs> no, I, yeah, you, you should, because that, that helps you know where you belong. You know, you and I have a mutual friend, Kathy Cook, and she wrote a book called Five to Thrive. And I'm actually writing a manuscript for them right now as kind of a theological undergirding for understanding these five core needs that every human has. And one of these core needs clearly is belonging. I mean, we have to know who our people are, who we're attached to. And when we find that family doesn't satisfy or meet the needs of meaning to or give us direction, we have to find that someplace else. We have to. We try to find a little bit online, but the church should be one of that, that preeminent group, that safe space, safe group of people where we learn how to work out the mission of God together. And it's also a sign and a symbol to the unbelieving world of the reality of our transformation. But you and I both know that church is messy. And in in smaller rule situations, sometimes those people are there, not because their lives have been transformed, but that's the only thing they've ever known. I mean, I grew up in a rural church that's now closed. Actually, it's a really sad story. I went back to go visit and I, I noticed there was this fence built around. It's a country church and it has become an apartment. And really sad. And it was right next to a cemetery and the cemetery was all grown up and I have my families in that cemetery. But I remember sitting in the services, not feeling that I belonged to that group of people. I love them and I cared for them, but a lot of them were really old. They were farmers and nothing wrong with being a farmer. I, I grew up with them. But they were overalls to church and they had hearing aids and, and uh, they didn't have a lot of education. I mean, they loved their families. They loved Jesus. And then you had sister Dorothy playing the piano with the oxygen tank. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I remember we had, we had, a, we had this sister, Betty. I'm not going to give her last name. I know she's <laughs> no longer on this earth, but I, you know, you're in a smaller church when you, she was getting up and she said, I was supposed, I was supposed to sing because he lives, but I have laryngitis. So I'm going to whistle it. <laughs> I kid you not. She, she whistled. <laughs> she she whistled oh, because he lives and I'm sitting there 
in high school going, I do not belong with these people. I do not belong with these people. These are what kind of people are these? Because because a lot of times Christians can be awkward, can be frustrating. However, it's still, you know, and I know this is this is apocryphal, but Augustine was purportedly to have said the church is a whore, but she's still my mother. Mm -hmm. And I know that's apocryphal, but the fact somebody said that, and I still think the statement though plays is that the church is messed up. The church is messy. The church can be hypocritical. The church can do all these things, but it's still this kind of incubator where we, we learn and we grow. I like to look at it as spiritual triage. You know, there's a, it's a hospital. We're all trying to get to the great physician. It's kind of like the waiting room. We're all trying to get there. The problem is, is when we start trying to diagnose the other people, trying to make ourselves into the great physician. But I do think that that family unit is still important. And I do think that the church can play that. Now, I understand that not every church is this rural church where you got Sister Betty whistling because he lives. The world would be a, maybe a better place if that happened <laughs> no, in a church. I mean, but at the same time, like growing up in this church, I mean, we had, it was a small church. So my, my experience was different. I mean, we had 75 on Easter and that was packed house, packed house, 75 people. So, but at this, as years have gone by, I went, you know what, even though that church was very backward, I mean, the sermons were not very exegetical or expository. It was basically like a Billy Graham sermon or what came off of the 700 club. <laughs> I mean, I kid you not. And Bill Gaither was the 13th apostle, uh, that kind of place, you know, and, um, and it had all these people that were backwards and strange and socially awkward. And, but that's exactly where they should be. And in retrospect, as I've aged, I've seen now that the church is filled with awkward people. And we're, we're, the problem is, is when we don't think we are awkward, we don't want to be associated with that awkward. But it's, again, this is showing the reality of the love of Christ is that Christ takes in the outcast. He takes in the people that have no other place to go. And it's harder when you're more affluent or intelligent or in tune with the world. You don't necessarily want to be associated with people that aren't. You know what I'm saying? When you have choices. But I think as, as a community of God, you have to be. The hard part is if your church doesn't have a lot of things to offer you in terms of spiritual growth. And I'm not talking about classes. I'm talking about kind of the classic understanding of making disciples of coming alongside someone else, another believer and entering into their life and just seeing how it works out in the day to day. And I mean, I saw that my grandparents were, were, my grandfather was the pastor of this country church and he had a seventh grade education. He got saved at 40 and he went right into pastoral ministry right after that. And he, he, he didn't, I mean, he studied the word. He, he really did love God. He did more than a thousand funerals in his lifetime between 40 and 80 something when he retired, you know, 43 years. Wow. And, and he was the kind of person you wanted to do your visitation in the hospital. That's his ministry. And he was gracious. He was merciful. He didn't have a lot of theology. He had a very limited, limited understanding of scripture. And he was a full-time farmer. I mean, he, you know, he had harvest season. He had to be out on the combine and he'd even tell the church, like, I can't be there this week. I got to get the harvest in. They're like, Hey, that's fine. Cause we're not going to be there either. <laughs> we got to get it. We got to get it in. So, so then to be brought into an urban environment, I think was just very different. And this is why I appreciate Keller is because I do think the urban environment is in some ways completely different, but in the way it's not. But even with that urban environment and going back to that family part again and how uh, the church shapes us, 
I think the church also helps us to see what is true and pursuable in not just the word of God, but in life. And that's something that I feel like the church has failed. So what we want to do is help people figure out the mission of God where they're at. And we, we do so because we think people are stuck. It's more like Christendom was like an island. And this island is like slowly, like the water's rising around it. I don't know if you've seen some of those islands in Oceania where those, you know, the water's rising, they have to get off the island. I think Christendom is a shrinking island in the United States. And we're trying to show you the lifeboat to the new way. And part of though is you have to realize though that the water is rising before it's too late. And I, I think in urban environments, you sense it faster in some, some, some way. And I think in an environment where it's a high Christian culture, you're, you're behind the curve. Because why do I need to change anything? I'm still doing the old ways and it's still working. However, as the culture becomes more secularized, apart from a movement of God, you are going to have to learn how to communicate in a different way to them. What, so in essence, what's the lifeboat that you're building that the message of Jesus can, can sh- you know, show them and take them to? And so what we think is part of the way of getting you unstuck is helping you, number one, look at the scriptures with some new eyes. Not that the truth has changed, but I think we don't look at the text with cultural lenses very well. We, I mean, we look at it with our own cultural lenses. Let me illustrate. I'm, I was in India and I was talking to this, this uh, young wife. Her husband's right there. We were, there were four of us, me and another American, and then this, this Indian pastor with his wife. And I'd been talking to the Indian pastor and I wanted to hear from his wife because she was very quiet. And in that cultural context, the women don't, uh, her role, especially in this denominational kind of context, wasn't to speak very much. It was very, con- very conservative group. And I asked about her testimony and she kind of hedged and her husband started to answer. And my friend went, uh-uh, no, because he knew this guy well enough to go, no, he wants to hear from her. And so she said, well, my, my, we were Hindu. My father became a Christian and we all became Christians. That was it. That, I mean, it was, so then I get this idea of from Acts, he and his whole household believed. You, know, you see what I'm saying is, is I understand that now because I never got that before. I mean, I'd read it. I'm like, okay, his household believe, you know, but, but here it, it violated what I knew though, is my post-reformation kind of Puritan quickening of the spirit idea. <laughs> right. Like you have to have this experience yourself. And for her though, her, her belief was just as genuine. Right. Even though she didn't have that. So Going back to that cultural lens, what the missionalistic approach does is it, we look at the scriptures to see not only the scriptures for propositional truth, but actually how to, and I, I use the term enact. I know some people don't like that uh, because the scripture is alive already, but it's learning how to not just take the propositions of scripture, but to get the full rhythm and the truth of scripture, I, I, I kind of say this, and I've said it before, because this is what we got from Kevin Van Hooser when he was on the show, that it's like a performance script. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this divine discourse. And he, he enables us to read the word and live out the word in such a way that the world sees, like we're, we're playing a part in a play. And that's attractive to people. So that's, the, so that's the other part of it. Actually, everything that we do comes from the scripture. Even the missionalistic approach, people are like, what is that? What is that? What is that? It's nothing new, actually. It's quite old. Um, and it, it's, it, to me, it's really, it's really basic, but it's not basic to our modern ears. It would have been to the world of, the, of Jesus's time, I think, um, with the exception of this next point, which is church, the Christian past. Because <laughs> there wasn't a Christian past then. <laughs> right. 
But this is where I think Keller, when he talks about understanding our history and learning, and he actually talks about it like a meaning in life that suffering can't take away, but even deepen. That's one of the ways to win the West. And how it changes our suffering. And, and that's where I look back over church history. Again, this is why we look over the Christian past is so that we can draw from it and learn. And again, that George Santiana or Santana, I don't know how you say his last name. The guy who made the comment that everybody knows, you know, those who don't, those who uh, don't know history are doomed to repeat it. That right. kind of thing. I mean, I'm probably butchering the quote, but I, I think we need to learn from it. Like, who are we as evangelicals? This is why we had, um, David Bevington on. This is why Mark Knoll, we have his episode going to be, it's in the queue. And to learn what it means to be an evangelical, to learn from the suffering of others, to learn from the early church and to see what they dealt with too. The, the, one of the things I do struggle with, like I love, I love the Reformation and my brothers are for the Reformation. I'm there with them, locked arms. But there are some within that group that think that the church began at the Reformation. Right. And they forget. I mean, they would say, yeah, it's a good Pentecost, but then it's like they skip from John and they forget Augustine and Athanasius and, you know, Origen and Tertullian and they get right to John Calvin and Martin Luther or Martin Luther and John Calvin. I'm like, well, wait a minute. You know, you had 1500 years of church history. <laughs> you got to learn from here. So we got to, we got to learn yeah. from those, those kind of church fathers. I kind of want to just say, I feel like you're sometimes when we look at culture, we can look at it through that glass half empty. So we, we look around, you kind of gave that picture of like the, the oceans are rising and the church is shrinking, right? Mm -hmm. in, the, in, the we, West, in the West, in the not, West, in the West, totally. Yeah, in the West. I think when we look worldwide and, and you see the world through that lens, I try to see the world through that lens, but the reality is I've got to look over like seven rows of corn and then three soybean fields. And, and eight children that are like yeah. six, eight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Your kids are you. sons of Attic, man. All over. <laughs> you know, well, it's, it's the water, man. But I think there's a there's something though too. Also, well, understanding like you were kind of going to that understanding our past, and I think when we look back at that time period that you just went through, the Augustine origin, you kind of follow that time period. There is this, um, you know, for lack of a better word, there's a, a book actually written with this title. But there's this patient ferment. There's this bubbling up of the church mm -hmm. throughout years and years and years. Through simple faithfulness of yeah. small churches, right? I yeah. mean, really small churches that just simply do faithful ministry. And I remember having a conversation with somebody once that they were wrestling through the fact that some of my friends that drive tractors don't have an understanding of what Lewis was talking about in the great divorce. And I, and right, like they were, they were like picking this apart. Like, man, I just wish we could get those guys in the tractor to, and I was like, and, and I have this thought that sometimes those that like faithfully live it are actually probably understand it in a fresh or new way, or maybe even a deeper yeah. way of what it looks like to trust the Lord. Even though like you kind of referenced, you know, the goofiness or, or the silliness maybe of some of the things that were done in your church, like the whistling, yeah. which I think yeah. was totally awesome. My kids brought home this like flute of this plastic pipe flutophone thing that I had to pay five dollars for. And I was like, what in the world ever will this ever do for you? you know, you're sitting on the corner and you're saying, you know, I'm so glad my fifth grade teacher taught me how to play three blind mice because it's coming in handy in this moment. That never happens. But I think at the same time, in all of that, there is this simple faithfulness that that lady had of like, hey, I got laryngitis last yeah. night and I'm just going to simply whistle. And there's there's something to that that I even want to like project on you 
and maybe I'm doing this incorrectly, but like speak to that. There's something about also your history. There's something about Keller's history with his with his parents, yeah, right, and with his sister that also is something that shaped his faith to then equip him to be that minister faithfully in where he was placed. It was the Elizabeth Elliot and the other people that influenced him. Yeah. And so when we look at this, like from a broader standpoint, maybe pulling back 10,000 feet, what would you say are the, maybe like those historical hooks that when we look at a missio holistic approach, when we look actually at the church, who are those historical hooks that we need to like, consider reference in this cultural moment where we do look around and we see wow. the, the water rising up, what would be the approach that we should take to give ourselves actual cultural context for this moment? So we're not just sitting here despondent at the fact that the churches are shrinking, right? but there's less people in our, there's less young people in our church. There's less right. active, engaging young people in our church. But what is that history that we should draw from? Do you think? to give us inspiration to be the church in this moment? That's a, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that history cyclical, number one. I, I, I want to do that because, I mean, I've read enough books over the years, I'm sure you have too, where you see the different generations. I've listened to quite a few, man. I've listened to quite a few. <laughs> but but I, I do think there is that, like certain generations question truth. Some want to just, you know, destroy the structures. Other, one, other ones want to build it. So I, I find a little bit of hope from that just over time. I mean, even the post-World War II, what they went through, how they came back to baby boom. Um, mm -hmm. There was right. a lot of greatness that was in there, but they also united it with politics. Right. A, a lot of ways. Like I, I did, um, I was trying to do a master's thesis uh, for a time on uh, Tory Maynard Johnson. Now Tory Maynard Johnson was actually the founding considered to be the founder of youth for Christ. And he actually hired Billy Graham to be mm -hmm. his, his first paid employee. And that's what really gave Billy a platform and it blew up from there. And I met Tori at near the end of his life. And he, I asked him, I said, did, did you, uh, do you know Billy Graham? He goes, Oh, he worked for me for a few years. Like who, who, who says that? But he actually was the one who helped influence Billy on his approach to evangelism and crusades. So, so what I'm saying is, is that even in those moments, Billy was being formed and, according to what was going on at the time, because at the time it was very separatistic where Christians didn't interact. You didn't act with liberals, you didn't act with progressive. You know, we would call it the, today's progressive was yesterday's liberal for the most right, part. Right. Right. Totally. Yeah. And so he does this, he, he would invite them to the, the crusades that he had, which let's not even talk about the word crusades for a moment, but he did so and the conservatives freaked out. Like they're not brothers, they're not sisters. And he put them on the platform. But his thought was, if I don't get them, then I don't get their church. And I want them to know who Jesus is and hear the message of Jesus. And so could that be a lesson for us today as we're working with progressives? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. But it, it does make you, give you historical examples to draw from. You know? So um, I also think that when the church becomes uh, very compromised, you want to say, okay, who can we look at? And so you look at like the, the desert fathers, uh, Gregory of Nisa or Gregory of uh, Nazirius and Chrysostom and Anthony of Egypt, you know, these guys are withdrawing in some way, not all of them, of course, they're different. But Anthony of Egypt, he's, you know, he's one of these monks. They go out into the world to kind of preserve the faith. And so you see that today. I don't know if you've read Rod Dreher, he 
he wrote a book called The Benedict Option. And that's basically what he said is we withdraw from the world. And that's the example that we have before us. And he draws what's going on in our contemporary culture with the quote unquote woke. And, and I'm using that in the political way, not in the classical understanding of how it's been used by our African-American brothers and sisters. And he said that that is so culturally to Marxism and what was going on in communist Hungary and the, Russia and and we need to respond a way that the, the churches did. How, you know, what does it happen? Where do we go from? So I'm not saying we take that stance. I'm not sure if that's the right stance, but I, but you see people looking at the culture and going, where do I have historically can I draw from? Now, personally for me, I think Daniel is a great example mm-hmm. because here's this guy. I mean, it, it, it's not a one-to-one comparison, of course, but here's this guy is taking off his homeland as a, as a teenager. He's castrated, most likely. He's forced to take on a pagan name. He's forced to go to a pagan seminary, forced to learn pagan history, forced to go work in a pagan court, and then do all their traditions. And yet he's very faithful in his service to all of these different rulers. I mean, I, he was in service for decades. I can't even remember how many different governments or regimes that he worked for, but there's several. And he's faithful. He's completely faithful and points away to Jesus that I think finds its fruition into the beginning of the New Testament uh, with the Magi. So I look at him and I go, okay, this is a guy that had it forced upon him. Now, the difference is here in the West, we have the ability to vote, to, to you know, speak. I mean, we're, we come from a culture in the United States where individual freedoms and rights are, are very high. And we have a history of that. But that's where we go again. Do we go, do we draw from that history and fight? Or do we look to the New Testament? What would Jesus do? You know, the, so I, I can't say that there, there's always an example, but I think Daniel is pretty good at blazing a trail for us when it comes to the Christian past. But that also is, is connected to the global voices part. Because I think that people in the world, Christians in the, around the globe, are dealing with circumstances where they're not the majority. They are the minority. And they, they are subject to the cultural powers that be. And therefore, their faith looks different. I, I, even when talking to David Bevington in that episode that we had, which was so good. He was so good. Just brilliant. I, mean, I think it's also part of his accent, too. I was just like, oh, this, this is... And the fact that he developed a quadrilateral. Like, <laughs> nobody, nobody has that tied to their name. I mean, he just... There's a shape that my kids know right now that Bevington is how I know it, right? <laughs> They're like, what shape is that, Dad? That's a Bevington quadrilateral. You're like, what does that mean? Let me explain it to you. And so we do theology and, and shapes in our house. Uh, but he, I think the thing that he told taught me was you can still thrive and not have cultural power. It looks different though. And I, I think we're all trying to figure that out. I think America is different than the UK. And I think there's actually, personally, I think there's a revival in Europe that's happened. I, I think God has brought the nations to Europe through the... Uh, the refugee crisis in the diaspora, and you're seeing these churches become filled with people that are coming out of out of Islam, out of other religions, and they're coming to faith in Jesus, which is crazy. You know, I remember hearing Ray Baki, he was this urban missiologist in the late 90s. He was talking about how London, how many different people groups you had in London. And he said a lot of the white Londoners don't like that. You know, you have people come from Jamaica, all the places where the, the Commonwealth was, right? You know, this is the British soil. And he goes, I have a name for this principle. It's called the Empire Strikes Back. 
<laughs> but it, it but it drew my attention to something. That actually what you alluded to earlier is that God is is working into the cities and he's moving all these people for a reason. I, I still think that's why you bring them to the United States, either to be reached or to revive. Maybe both. You you might reach them and then they revive your church. I think though many of our brothers and sisters that share our skin tone have been in such a place like a community like yours. And again, I don't know much about the community that you're in. I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but I don't know what the ethnic makeup is. I know what Minnesota's like, but I also know that there are pockets of Minnesota that are very diverse. Is But I, I wouldn't think your community is very diverse. Am I wrong in that? No, it is actually because is. of refugee movements that have happened and okay. that for some reason, the Lord has brought the nations to our community. So That's awesome. My background actually is in missiology. I studied to be a missionary in school. And then I looked around and said, there's a, this is a mission field. I've got Muslims that are going to the store with me. I have three Hindu friends that are playing soccer with me on a Friday night. Like there's just reality here that the, the cultures have really melded mm-hmm. in, even in the Midwest, specifically in the Midwest. It's been really dynamic. Well, no, you. it's funny that you mentioned that. I came upon this article some time ago. It was a few years ago. And they were talking about how refugees are going into small towns. These immigrants are going into small towns. So this isn't just an urban thing anymore. This is all over. This is where we had, uh, we have an episode coming up with Alan Ye, who wrote a book called Polycentric Missiology. That's a fun word, polycentric. But it means a mission from everybody to everywhere. That's all it means. And it, it doesn't have like just one center. It's not like the United States going everywhere. You know, it's everybody now is sending missions all over the place. So I, I, I agree with you. And this is why I think what Keller, why Keller is so important again, because he's saying, how do we win the West again? How do we re-evangelize? And he talks about having a missionary encounter. I actually love that because that's exactly what we're trying to do with Apollos Water. It's help train people to have a missionary encounter with the culture that they're in. And for those that have been around a while, what I'm finding is that many of them are just now waking up. Like they're waking, it's almost like come out of this cultural slumber. And they're looking around going, there's a lot of people around here don't look like me. You know, I, I, I see people that are different than me. What do I do? What do I say? And then they either become like bunkered, you know, they bunker down and then they lament or shout at the evil, you know, how bad these people are. And they can't see the opportunity that's really there for the, the gospel. And I think it brings a whole new level. I, I remember my, my last church. We would talk about this, right? And leadership will argue, how do we go about it? How do we go about it? How do we go about it? But that all goes away. The moment you have someone of a different religion walk in your building. The first time I had a Muslim walk in our church, the whole church shifted on a dime. Suddenly every argument became smaller to the greater opportunity that we had in front of us. And it was even funny. It changed how they sang. That was the funniest thing. So suddenly people are like puffing their shoulders out, singing louder as if my God's better than your God. <laughs> That's what it felt like. It totally felt that way. So I'm looking at him going, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't do that, but you actually have to build these relationships that take time and years. And that's where he says, don't have thin relationships. I think that's one of the biggest difficulties today because people feel more alone and isolated than they ever have before. And I think we have to build these relationships. I think that's what Keller's talking about. I mean, even as I go through the book and I, I, I read about his influences and I, 
I actually, I actually did cry. I'm going to, I know I said that on the episode. You know what? I heard you say that. And I heard you like, man, you know, just take my man card. I'm like, you know what? No, <laughs> like, let's just be honest. Let's just declare it right here. Men will cry into our beards. And that's a biblical thing. <laughs> and it's okay. No, it is okay to cry. Yeah. I don't, I don't have a problem crying. I, but my question is, is talking about it. No, 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 no. I think it's more <laughs> like my, my kids when I'm always telling them, I'm like, is it cry worthy? Like oh, it has to I be see. cry worthy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like my yeah. son would cry. And I'm like, that's not cry worthy. You know, that's not cry worthy. And again, that's a little bit subjective, but you know, I read Homer and they had no problem. The men of during Homer's time of wailing and crying. It just, it wasn't a thing. What, what made me cry about it though, is because I see what we're trying to do in the same area code of what he's trying to do, what, what he did. Like he's provided a template and we've, we've been talking around these things and trying to develop these core principles. And I mean, as we talked about, I mean, we're still kind of working out some of the wording for them, but whether it's enacting the scriptures or linking to the Christian past or learning from global voices or learning to embody living out these in a relational context, how to have these relationships and then be able to, you know, so engage the world where we're at. And so there, all these things are connected and they're, they're actually drawn out by the book. So when I'm reading it, I think it's because we worked so hard to help people to create language, to help people see what's going on around them. And to know that, that there was another person that's done it was really encouraging, you know? So I think it just made me weep at the, at the, the beauty of it. Like I felt heard, you know, and, and I, I, that's what I took away from the book. I mean, I, I mean, it's not a perfect book. There's parts that, that he wrote and, and I like Colin. He's a great guy. I had a hard time catching on at the beginning what he was doing, but I, I don't know how many times that I've actually read a book of a guy. that's still alive. Right. I, I mean, only a few times that I think I can do that. And some of them are autobiographies. And I, that's the other thing. I autobiographies weird me out because you think you get into their mind and you're hearing about them, you're learning about them, which is awesome. But chances are, they're not going to talk about the stuff you want to learn. Right. Cause they just take yeah. it for granted. Like when I read CS Lewis's surprise by joy, I was like, I don't like this book. <laughs> I mean, it was great, but I'm like, I don't know what's going on. He's talking in code. Who's the great knock. Who are these people, you know, that he's talking about. Now I know some people loved it, but I'd rather, I think for me, I'd rather read a book about him written by someone else than I would the other way. But yeah. And, and with the dynamic of, I think what Colin did in a lot of the book is he gave you a perspective of Tim Keller that Tim Keller might not give that perspective yeah. to you, but you saw it through the lens of Colin, right? There's, you know, the, another example of that is, you know, the inklings with you, yeah. you know, Lewis and Tolkien and Charles William. And, yeah. All those guys. Yeah. And one of them passes away and they're like, Hey, I, I lost part of Tolkien in that relationship because he pulled it out, you know? And so you see, I think there's something dynamic to this that we see Tim Keller through the lens that Colin provides, but it's also a lens that gives I think for a lot of us, that answer to what is it? What is it that made him tick in a world where we're really trying to connect and yeah. not feel alone and have thick relationships and all of these things. And, you know, all that we've read is really some great, you know, perspectives and musings from Tim Keller. But then for some of us, we're kind of like, I want to live out that pastoral calling, yeah. you know, in, in the same faithful way that he has and is right now. 
how did he do it? What did he have? And you see his family and you're like, man, like this, I've got inspiration to live this out now. There's, it's just kind of an inspiring perspective, I think, that is given from Colin to the Christian church right now. Oh, it's it's huge because I think we're all desperate for examples of those that have gone ahead and not perfect examples. You know, when you think of Keller, because he's 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 austere, he's articulate, and you'd think maybe he came from this upper higher class background, because he's with Manhattanites, you know, these very very smart socialites and intellectual stimulating conversation and interacting with like David Brooks of the New York times. And he probably harmonizes three blind mice on his flutophone. But going back to what you said though, and I, 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 this is where I actually want to draw encouragement. When I, when I was actually going into pastoral ministry, like as an undergraduate, like I knew God had called me into ministry. I actually wanted to pastor the rural church, a small church. And that, cause really that's all I knew. I didn't like cities. They were too big. Like I didn't even pick a larger college because it was intimidating to me. I couldn't find my way. I mean, I went to a high school and it was a public high school, public high school. We had 120 students in the entire high school. And my graduating class had 30 and it was a public high school. And we only had 30 because we had two foreign exchange students. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So to go off for a university for me, I was feeling like I was swallowed up. I like the idea of a small town, but I think small town and rural pastors. And I think we're going to do a segment in the future. Like I've got a buddy of mine who pastors up in Vermont and it's doing a lot of rural ministry. I've got other friends. And I, I keep thinking of a book that one of my profs wrote when I was an undergraduate who's, and he stole it from Francis Schaefer. There are no little people and there are no little places. And I think personally, I felt I have encountered God more in the whistling special with all of the special needs people in this awkward, creaky church where it had a pew, you know, it had the pews that you don't know how old they were. But I've been in other churches where you have the light show and the fog machine and, you know, all the tech. And I'm not trying to, to lambast that. My point is, is that I, I feel like I've experienced God more in those other instances. Now, someone else might have the opposite experience. Mm-hmm. I'm not to be the Holy Spirit, but I think sometimes, I, I remember Andy Stanley saying this. He said, when you manufacture, try to manufacture joy, you're failing. And so I don't want to try to manufacture joy. I want it to be an authentic byproduct of the Spirit's outwork. And for those brothers that are out and brothers and sisters that are serving in some way, shape, or form in a rural, in a small church, in a small community, don't give up. Don't, and don't compare yourself. To it. Just because you don't have a massive church and massive following doesn't mean that God's not working through you too. I've seen both sides of that. And sometimes I, I, I just, I, I, I go back to, I actually referred to this in the Colin episode with, uh, R. Ken Hughes wrote a book called Liberating the Ministry from the Success Syndrome. That's such a good book because he said success is loving. Success is serving. Success is sacrificing. It's not always in the numbers and the big show and the notoriety and the platform and all of that. That's where C.S. Lewis brings that out in The Great Divorce, where you have this woman that appears. She's, you know, from Gilder's Green. I remember that. And she's gorgeous and beautiful and bright. And 
And he's like, is she, is she? And he responds, the guy does and says, no, it's no one that you would have recognized. But this world has revealed who she really was. She was very quiet and assuming woman in your, in that world. But here she's seen for all of who she is in her glory. And I think there's going to be a lot of that. I think there are some people that we thought were going to look great and may not look great. I mean, they're still going to be in praise and worship Jesus because they knew Jesus. But there are some people that were sitting side by side, day in and day out, that you've never seen. You don't maybe not remember their name. Maybe they whistled, <laughs> you know, but they were faithful and they were sacrificial and they were loving. And I have to cling to that because there are times when I preach, I mean, <laughs> more times than not, people didn't respond. And then you hear Spurgeon, you know, you're, you're Spurgeon. Like this guy, like there was one guy came to him and he goes, Spurgeon, he goes, brother Spurgeon, I want to know why I don't get results like you do. And he goes, do you believe people are going to be saved when you preach? Um, every time you preach, he goes, no, of course not. He goes, well, that's your problem then. And I hear that and I'm like, I really suck. Because I, 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 I haven't had that. That's not been my ministry. That's why, honestly, that's why we call it watering. Because I'm not the, I'm not the great event. I'm not that, but I am good at the watering part. And I hope we can lean in all of us to what we are good at and the ministry in the sphere of influence that God has called us where he's at. He didn't, he's not called any of us to just like be famous and be this massive success. There's nowhere he says, Hey, by the way, you got to have 25,000 people. I mean, if that's the case, then he himself was a failure in his moment. Cause I mean, if you think about it, I mean, he only had 12 and then and one, and and one a lot of them whistle, man. Yeah, a lot of them. That's all they could do. Let's just be honest. Well, I mean, but you think about it, one of them betrayed him. Right. He deserted him. You know, it's like, and he, and he dies. And from a, a world standpoint, that guy's a big, massive failure. But that's the way the Christian walk. It's, it's dying all the time. And I, I just think sometimes, and my, this is myself included, you get caught up in this idea that you're something. And that's where I love was at Zinzendorf hmm. to preach Christ and die and be forgotten. Right. And that's where I love some of these guys like today, like Keller is not a guy that seems to believe his own celebrity. He doesn't. Right. He just is going along, trusting, living in the way that God wants him to. And I think that's what we, you know, I know we're coming to the end of our time. We've gone a little bit long, but I, I just would really encourage people to read the book. To, to check it out because it's such an inspiration to so many people. Yeah. I want to thank everybody for listening today. If you're listening to this audio, make sure to check it out on YouTube. We should have it available for you as well. And if you want to be able to partner with us to help water the world, just go to your show notes on your phone or pick, go on your computer and your website, go to apolloswater.org, click the support us button. Know that you're helping and making a difference in watering souls around the world. We hope that this was inspiring and helpful to you in your walk in fulfilling the mission of God where God has you. That's our hope and prayer. But send us a word. Check us out on our Facebook page. Like us on YouTube. Subscribe to this podcast. Share it with others. Do all of those things. But people are telling me that you're only supposed to do one thing. So one thing, give this a thumbs up and tell Wayne how much you love That's what I want you to do. Feed him and his eight kids. All right, everybody. I do want to thank our Apollos Water team for making this a reality. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on the roll.